information contained herein should not be considered investment advice. All investments have risks. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon without first consulting your personal financial, tax, and legal advisors. The Benchmark Podcast is affiliated with BCS Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. to The Benchmark, a podcast put on by the team at BCS Wealth Management. My name is Scott Lynn, and I'm joined today with Nick Clay and Philip Bachman, or PB, as you will uh, hear us refer to him as. And today, we think we've got a really fun episode for you all. Um, we came up with that, the idea of doing a financial Mythbusters podcast. And, and I remember I was we were just talking just a few minutes ago. I thought, you know, it was maybe five or six years ago uh, that the show Mythbusters was popular, but Realize the older I get, the quicker time goes by. It's really been more like 15 years ago, I guess, that, that folks used to watch that show. Um, and for those of you that maybe haven't seen what, you know, what Mythbusters was, um, it, it was a group of scientists that would just test various myths, uh, you know, against scientific data and, and facts to see if the myths actually were true or not. So, you know, some of them were, uh, I think there was an episode of if cell phones actually do interfere with, uh, you know, with airplane um you know, all their, their gauges and all those kinds of signals. things. And yeah, the signals, um, you know, another one, is it impossible to fold a piece of paper more than seven times? Not I think Nick had mentioned earlier yeah. that actually it is impossible. I tried. So yeah. That's it. I tried with different <laughs> thickness of paper. It's, uh, you can't do it and, yep. and make it stay. Yep. Um, they tested the, you know, the theories of hypnosis, if that actually works or not, you know, kind of a, an anecdote there, you know, I've always actually, you know, so my grandparents, you know, they grew up in an age when, you know, when smoking was, they didn't know that it was so dangerous at the, you know, at the time. And so they were smokers and tried every possible <laughs> way they could to quit smoking. And uh, they swore the only thing that actually made them eventually quit was being hypnotized. So it's, I mean, that, yeah, take what that for what it's worth. I don't, I don't know. So, all right. So, yeah, so we're going to, we'll, we'll, we've got a list of 10 or 11 different myths here, financial myths that, that we're going to kind of tackle. A lot of uh, topics, I think, that we address, you know, on a, a fairly regular basis. And just like Mythbusters, the, the show, we're going to try to go through some data and some facts to, to try to bust some of these myths. So with that, you know, let's just start at what might be the juiciest one of all, right? So we're, of course, we're in an election year. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, have have the idea that markets go up or down based on what, you know, what office or, or what, uh, you know, whether Democrat or Republican holds the presidency. So I know we've addressed this, I think, on, on our year end uh, and looking forward to 2024 podcast. And, and PB's got some data on that. So I'll, I'll let you tackle that one, PB. Let's bust that myth. All right, let's go for it. <laughs> so the myth is markets go up or down based on which political party holds the presidency. That's a that's an oversimplification, and in, in our research and in our studies, we find that over a long term, markets have historically performed similarly, regardless of who holds the presidency. Uh, here's an interesting anecdote on that: two presidential election cycles ago, it feels like yesterday, but it was in early 2016. I remember that our team was studying the performance of a large U.S. stock mutual fund, which was basically tracking the S&P 500 index. 
There had been 11 terms of Democratic presidential leadership and nine terms of Republican leadership in the White House between 1936 and leading up to the 2016 election. We would have thought, oh, sure, there's going to be some great wide difference of performance uh, based on which uh, um, uh, leadership was in the, uh, the presidency, but actually that's not what we found. So interestingly, these results, which were based on 10-year periods, each of those 10-year periods beginning on January the 1st of a new presidential term year of Republican and Democrat presidents was negligible. Uh, the fund had average annual returns of 11% during the Democratic 10-year periods and 10.7% during the Republican 10-year periods. And let's keep in mind that this, uh, these figures uh, span periods of both economic calm and economic strain. They overlapped different presidents because not every president was in office clearly for 10 years. Uh, it's, it's not possible. So the point being, for medium to long-term investors, it really is negligible, which... Um, uh, office, uh, or excuse me, which political party is in office. Uh, a few other interesting findings that we've been looking at lately is uh, the S&P 500 index had negative returns in only two of the last 20 election years. Those were 2000 and 2008. Both of those declines were largely attributed to asset price bubbles rather than politics. So yeah, it's scary perhaps to be in an election year as a stock investor. There's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of media attention around the election. Uh, it, it seems to divide people, and that's unfortunate. But when it comes to investing, especially for long-term investing like retirement investing and other long-term goals, we really don't believe it's worth worrying too much because in the end, as history shows us, it is a myth that markets will go up or down based on which political party is in leadership. Yeah. Very good. Thanks, PB. So that's myth one busted. Um, you know, and talking about we're, we're in an election year, obviously, right now. Uh, and as we record this here, kind of in, in the middle, end of February 2024. I don't know if we're supposed to time date this or not, but there we go. <laughs> we will mention that we're sitting at or near some all-time highs also. Mm -hmm. So, you know... And this has honestly kind of been one I've had in my head. So myth number two is it's a bad time to buy when stocks hit all-time highs. And and I've honestly had a hard time kind of getting my head around this one that, you know, yeah, when you, you want to try to obviously sell high and buy low, right? So um, we've done some research around this, and, and I'm, I have a chart here in front of me that goes back to 1950. Uh, it's the S&P 500. And it's got little green dots on it. And we'll try to maybe try to upload these charts, uh, you know, to our website also where you all can access these and, and take a look at them as well. Um, but there's little green dots on every time that the market hit an all-time high. And they're not spread out. Matter of fact, they're all clustered together. So, you know, just looking at a chart, you know, it, it kind of just tells me that all-time highs sort of beget new all-time highs. Um, you know, it typically, I guess, would mean that we're in good economic times and, you know, bull markets run and sort of a momentum indicator, isn't it? Exactly. You, know, you get the, the snowball rolling, accumulating snow and in, in this case, in a good way. And it just wants to continue that momentum. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So and to that point, you know, Nick, in, in your most recent uh, market update that you wrote for the January newsletter, you had a chart in there also that, that shows that good years tend to kind of cluster together. 
Yeah, it, it some of this really is mind blowing, you know, and, unless you really look at it. But yeah, so in our most recent newsletter, our quarterly newsletter, we we kind of looked at, you know, because we had just finished the year and it was close to an all time high, if not an all time high in some of the indexes. But, you know, the natural inclination for a lot of people is, OK, we're at all time highs. It has to go down from here. You know, it can't continue to go higher. And, you know, should we get more conservative and and things of that nature? But, you know, when you look back at history, it it kind of shows that, you know, these good years tend to cluster together. It's not just one year. And then uh, a negative year or a period of time that's negative. Uh, but, you know, and I guess I would say last year was a really good year, but it was on the heels of a really bad year. And really, for the most part, last year wasn't a great year as far as performance goes. It was just the last quarter or even last month. So when you look at it from the perspective of it was just really two or three good months, that's not really necessarily a good reason to think that, oh, it's got to go down from here. And so, you know, we're looking at some of these numbers and, you know, returns, you know, uh, in the 40s, you know, 42 through 45, it's 19 percent, 25 percent, 19 percent, 35 percent positive. Uh, you know, the early 80s, 1982 was up 21 percent, up 23 uh, percent. We probably most recently remember, you know, on the heels of COVID or when we were coming through the, the COVID pandemic, you know, 2019, 2020 and 2021 were up 31 percent, 18 percent, 28 percent. And so, you know, when you look at it through the lens of like history, um, instead of just like, what is it doing today and, and what is it going to do tomorrow? And we've talked about this before, but statistically, markets go up, you know, three out of four years. And so it would make sense to have two or three or sometimes four uh, good years kind of clustered together like that. Oh, right. Kind of, yeah, sort of on the heels of that also, you know, obviously coming off of a bear market in, in 2022. Um, we found some data that shows what happens, you know, after the the market goes through a bear market, and then once it achieves new highs from that bear market, where has the market been? And the market meaning the S and P five hundred, where has it been? One year after it achieved that new high, three years, five years, and ten years after it achieved that new high. So we just hit the most recent highs. Uh, Jan- well, January nineteenth of twenty twenty four was when we first achieved a, a new high in the market post bear market. Um, so if we look at, you know, the, the prior 10 bear markets going back to 1957, you know, where again, where was the market at one year later, three years later, five years later, 10 years later after it hit those new highs? So kind of where we're at in the market, you know, right now. So on average, one year later, the market was up about 16 percent once it actually achieved those new highs. Uh, the three year number is a, a plus 27 percent number. After five years, it was up about 59%. And after 10 years, it was up over 200%. So more than triple 10 years later. So that, again, that's after the market is, you know, has kind of achieved its new high after a bear market. You know, past performance is not indicative of future results. We always have to insert that when we're talking about kind of the future of the of the markets. But history tells us that, you know, the markets can continue to run once they, once they do achieve new highs. Yeah, so this... This next chart that I'm going to reference, I think Scott, you brought it to our attention, is uh, is one of those things. It's kind of like, wow, that that can't be right. And you look into it, and it is. But you know, uh, kind of the, the counterintuitive part to this is that actually markets tend to perform better after they achieve all time highs. Like those numbers you just referenced are are strong. Um, but this chart we're looking at, you know, from J.P. Morgan says, if you had invested in the S and P 500 on any given day since 1988 your returns would be just shy of 12%, which is awesome. 
you know, you just picked any day, that's what you get. But if you only invested on days where the S&P 500 closed at an all-time high, so kind of what we're talking about, you know, and, and where we are, you know, in the current market, you know, a lot of folks are kind of like, well, should we wait for a pullback or, you know, uh, you know, should we invest at an all-time high? What, you know, it, it's just this emotional and the behavioral finance component that we've talked about. But, you know, if you just invested on days that hit an all-time high over that same period of time, your returns would be nearly 15%. So it's, uh, you know, it, I mean, that's it's a shot. Yeah, right? I mean, that's just, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, it doesn't make, it's like, it's counter. It's like, wait, let me wait yeah. until it hits an all time high, not try to invest through the growth. Let me just wait till it hits an all time high and, and then invest. And, you know, I don't know that that's the greatest investment strategy in the world, but these numbers, you know, are, are pretty real, you know, and so it kind of takes out that argument of, you know, the market's at an all time high. It can't go any higher. Like, it's, We've completely busted that myth. I mean, it's very clearly data shows that it it will go higher for the most part and that we should expect that. And right. so that, you know, just when markets hit an all-time high is not a, a time to all of a sudden, you know, switch your investment strategy to be more cautious. Now, I would say through highs and lows, you know, a good investment strategy is is rebalancing and doing the things that keep you disciplined to your strategy. But, you know, just picking a strategy based on if it is it high or low is is clearly not a good investment strategy. Right. Right. This is a nice segue into a third myth. So here's myth number three. I can time the markets. <laughs> you wouldn't be working here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that because our philosophy at BCS Wealth Management is that we don't believe we can time the markets. In fact, we believe the opposite. Uh, we believe that a better solution for investment management is really just to be disciplined, build a long-term plan that's tailored to your own individual goals and needs, and, and not play the market timing game, but rather be involved in the market for as long as we can to get the historical growth that it provides. Yeah, I mean, the, the odds are more in your favor with that. So it's it's kind of what's going to give us the greatest chance of success. For sure. For sure. There's another chart that uh, I'll reference for this next little section about market timing. So uh, Charles Schwab did an interesting study about this and looked back over 20 years worth of data. This is from 2003 through 2022. They took some hypothetical investors and compared and contrasted how they each did with their stock investing. Uh, and this is regarding the S&P 500 over these 20 years, depending on when they put money to work. Each of these hypothetical investors got $2,000 to invest at the start of every year. And it was up to them when to invest their $2,000 for that year. And, and so here's, here's what it says. The best outcome was a hypothetical investor named Peter who ended up at the end of the 20 years with $138,000 roughly, and he had perfect timing. We don't believe this is feasible, but if a person were to have hindsight and invest at any given point in the year that was optimal, so basically the low point of the year being optimal, you would end up with $138,000 after the 20 years, having started with $2,000 each year. So that was, that's the best that could be done. 
Now, let's see what happens with the second hypothetical investor, Ashley, let's call her. She invests her $2,000 the first day of the year. So immediately, it's a lump sum investment. When she gets it, she invests it in the market. She came out best out of everybody else who is going to follow in this conversation. So besides Peter, who has the perfect timing, Ashley, who just invests on the first day of the year with a lump sum investment, does the best of everybody else. Next best is Matthew, who takes his $2,000 and divides them up into 12 monthly investments. So that's a strategy called dollar cost averaging. He dollar cost average into the market. Now, that's not an unreasonable strategy in our view. Dollar cost averaging has some benefits, especially on the emotional and, and behavioral uh, side of things. It prevents procrastination. It helps to minimize regret. And uh, it also helps us generally to avoid market timing. Uh, so Matthew does dollar cost averaging, ends up with $124,000. So just about $3,000 less than Ashley. Rosie uh, comes in fourth place. She invests, unfortunately, at the top of the market each year. So that's less than ideal uh, timing. It's actually the worst any given year. She still ends up with $112,000. And then here's the last uh, hypothetical investor, Larry. He just remains nervous, and he sits on the sidelines. He lets his investment just stay in cash the whole time. He ends up with just $44,000, roughly, uh, way behind everyone else who invests in the market, no matter when they invest in the market. So we believe that this is just a simple illustration, but we do believe that market timing is dangerous. It might feel like we can do it, but looking at statistics and market history, and we couple that with the behavioral element, it's just very difficult. So we believe that um, sticking to a lump sum investment or a dollar cost averaging investment strategy is more uh, reasonable. Yeah. And, and both of those are, are plans. You you have a plan, you stick to it. It works. You know, the perfect timing is, you know, that example is there not to give us something to shoot for, but just to show you how close you can get to the performance of perfect timing with having a plan of just investing on the start first day of the year or when or when this potential money comes into your possession or dollar cost averaging um you know there is no one who has been peter in this situation you know um the the best of the best hedge funds and and all these different you know mutual fund active managers nobody has a track record like that um and so it's it's just more of a look how close you can get to perfection with a plan kind of thing um, and so, you know, the other side of, of really trying to time things is that, it, PB, you mentioned with dollar cost averaging, it kind of takes the emotions out of it, you know, with having a plan. And, you know, we're looking at, uh, we've, we've talked about this before, but, you know, if we go back to really the last 20 years or so, back to t- 2003, but seven of the 10 best days of the year occur within two weeks of the 10 worst days. And so, you know, when you have these moments where the market's down or it's one of the worst days of the year, that's that's usually when people are in the mindset, which is sometimes backwards of, all right, I, I got to get out. It's just going to get worse. I don't like this. I can't handle it. I can't sleep and, and all these things. But but it's really, you know, 
that's the time you want to stay invested, you know, and that's why, you know, having strategies of rebalancing and dollar cost averaging and things that it, it's a strategy that if you can stick to will enhance the opportunity for success. But, you know, it's just, it, it's almost like clockwork, you know, some of the best days of the year are going to happen after some of the worst days because the market is made up of a lot of knee jerk reactions. A lot of trading is based on volatility. And so just the, the, the numbers, if you just stay fully invested for that 20 year period, you've have, you know, when I say fully invested, I'm just assuming just an S&P 500 index fund. You know, you your returns over that period would be nine and a half, nine point eight percent per year. But if you just miss ten days, the the ten best days over that twenty year period, which unfortunately has happened to a lot of people, you know, um, it, it, they want to miss, they want to get out when things are getting kind of rough, and so they miss those days. But if you just miss the ten best days, your returns are almost cut in half, five point six percent per year over twenty years, and that's, you know, if you in most people. They don't just sit on the sideline for 10 days. Mm-hmm. You know, they sit on the mm-hmm. sideline till they start to feel better about things. Right. And by the time they feel better about things, it's because things have probably turned around. And it's probably because the market has moved positive That's from right. there. And so, sure. you know, if we just say you miss two months out of that 20-year period, your returns are negative. You know, if you just miss, uh, you know, the 60, 60 best days, your returns are negative 4.2%. And so... There's just a lot to be said about trying to time things. It's just really, really difficult. You know, you don't ever see the news channels interviewing the guy or the 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 gal that is continuously beating the market year after year after year. I mean, it's just it's not it's not possible. Doesn't they're, exist. they're interviewing, yeah. you know, this guy who's got this opinion, this girl who's got this opinion. They're trying to make a decision based on different points of view because nobody has the answer. Right. Yeah. And one one final chart we'll reference, you know, on this point as far as being able to time the markets. You know, JP Morgan has another great chart that shows uh, I believe this chart goes back to two thousand two and shows a twenty year time frame between two thousand two to uh, the end of two thousand twenty one. Um it shows the S P five hundred averaged about nine and a half percent over the course of that time. Uh, even if, you know, and, and kind of a common retirees portfolio is the 60-40 portfolio, 60% equity, 40% bond. That uh, that mix of, of stocks to bonds averaged about 75 or 7.4% over that time frame. Um, they have data that shows the average investor over that same time frame averaged 3.6%. And I think they look at fund flows, you know, money coming in and coming out of different funds to, to determine that. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that, that's another interesting chart to show, I think. As far as, you know, can I time the markets? And I, that, that chart, I think, points to that, you know, it is extremely difficult to be successful and, and trying to, t- impossible, I think, yeah, we, we even say to, yeah. to try. So basically, markets. this chart is saying that a lot of people try it, though. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> otherwise, successfully. Yeah. A lot of people try it unsuccessfully. Otherwise, the average investor's performance would be closer to the benchmark performance. You got it. Yep. That, that's right on. Yep. You got it. Yep. So let's move on to myth number four. Um, we'll talk a little bit about risk here the, over the next maybe couple couple myths or so. So one is that, you know, government bonds or, you know, what you even sometimes are, you know, hear them referred to as, as risk-free bonds uh, protect against all types of risk. And a lot of folks don't realize that you can actually, in fact, lose money in a government bond. And, and I think there's even a lot of people that don't realize you know, bonds trade like stocks do. You can buy or sell a bond in the open market. Um, and really, one of the biggest determining factors of the price of a bond is interest rates. So as interest rates increase, the value of a bond, all things equal, would decrease. As rates decrease, the value of a bond would, would increase. 
So if you bought even something as safe as, as a government bond that, you know, is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, which might be another debate for another <laughs> podcast, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, what's considered really a risk-free bond. If you bought a, a bond and, you know, sold that before the bond matured, you could, in fact, actually lose money on that bond if interest rates went the wrong direction on you. Um, you know, another risk, I think, as far as government bonds go and, and really kind of just bonds in general, they typically have not been an effective hedge against inflation, much like the stock market or, or other, you know, kinds of, of investments uh, have been over the long term. Um, you know, we, we've seen a chart, we have a book called Ibbotson's that just shows all kinds of market data. And, it's, you know, I think there's a chart in there. It's like a hundred year time frame. And it, it shows the performance of stocks over that time, basically going vertical and bonds, you know, basically just kind of keeping pace with what inflation is. And it's, you know, many years, not even keeping pace with what inflation is. Right. So. You know, that, that's something else, obviously, we take into account, you know, when we're thinking about investing and about risk is trying to outpace inflation. Right. So, Other very safe investments, too, like bank CDs also uh, don't tend to hold up to inflation very well over time. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It's, Great it's, point. It's yeah. real. It, it, there's only a few moments in, of time in history where these risk-free rates or CD rates have actually been, you know, a net positive. You know, after taxes in taxable accounts um, and inflation, sometimes your purchasing power is still being eroded. And and what even though the value of your investment may go up or be credited with interest. And so they're not always uh, so uh, (laughs) kind of I'll segue into a little bit of a story. But if we go back to last year, Silicon Valley Bank was like the big news in in first quarter of last year. And um, I remember uh, I was in. New York when all this went down and, um, you know, had some clients calling and saying, hey, there's you know, a bank failure. And all of a sudden, there's just this speculation of of a run on the banks. And, you know, we were in a period of, you know, uh, fear at, at that time anyway. But I would say that this, uh, the bank collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last year was, you know, where they were uh, a victim of their own success. And really, they thought they were doing the right thing. And And what did they do? They purchased government bonds, risk-free bonds. And so, you know, a little bit of the backstory there is, is, you know, they had been so successful, you know, they had taken some risk by lending to um, some of these companies that were in high growth mode that had, had paid off, you know, normal banks wouldn't lend to them. And so they had, you know, I think their asset base tripled over the course of uh, two and a half years, from 2020 through 2022. And then all of a sudden they were flush with cash. And it's like, what do we do with all this cash? And um, I think that they were trying to be good stewards of, of what they had. Uh, at least I hope that was the idea. But they had all this cash. And at that time, this was before the Federal Reserve started hiking rates and interest rates were still very low. It's like, man, we can't get any return on this money um, You know, if we just buy these short-term government bonds. So what did they do? They bought 10-year government bonds because that's where they could get. They, they were using money into a very safe investment, government bonds. And they were looking for to earn something on that money while it was just sitting there earning nothing. And and then, of course, we know what happened. The Fed started raising rates. And like Scott, you said, when when the Fed starts raising rates or rates start going up, the value of bonds decreases and goes down. And that's OK if you plan to hold the bond till maturity. You know, you're going to get what the um, the par value is. But in, in, you know, in the interim there, they are going to fluctuate. and so. Um, that's when the Fed started raising rates, 
And now their money is locked up in investments that are on paper going down in value. And then also at the same time, you know, these companies, uh, they wanted to earn more on their money, on their deposits, but they were also, you know, out in, in Silicon Valley. You know, there's a ton of cash burn with these companies. Payrolls start going up and all these things as inflation is up. And now all of a sudden, you know, they were going to the bank for money and the bank didn't have it. They had it, but it was locked up into these risk-free treasuries. And, and so, that's what a bank does, right? They yeah. invest long and lend short. Yes. And banks make the margin on that. And so when you have the demand for your short-term deposits, people coming in, trying to make payroll, pulling money out of there, you know, a bank better have that short-term reserve on hand yep. to match that. Yep. Other, you know, like Silicon Valley, they didn't. They had to sell those long-term right. bonds. At a loss, you know, and then, yeah, that. uh, And that, you know, the rumors of that um, and then the ultimate news just sparked, you know, a lot of fear. And, you know, these companies that had deposits there, you know, all of a sudden they're trying to get their deposits out. They're like, hey, if if they're selling risk free assets, that's bad. That's trouble. But it it wasn't really that, you know, it was just the, the timing of things. And it was unprecedented what the Fed did. The Fed really put a lot of pressure on some of these banks. And and again, that's why it's not necessarily a risk-free asset, because we don't know what policy is going to be in the future. And so that was just kind of something interesting. Luckily, it didn't really, you know, the dominoes didn't fall like a lot of people thought they would. But, you know, again, that was somebody thinking that they were doing something good with their money. It just happened to be a very large, reputable bank that was very successful. And um, it didn't exactly go uh, well there. They were taken over. Right. You know? um, so. All right. So I think we we debunked that uh, about government bonds. So let's let's kind of flip to the other side and say uh, stocks. You know, stocks are, are risky. And that's that's a very sweeping statement. And, you know, I, I think it goes back to your plan. But I also think it's has to do with time. You know, stocks are uh, what a lot of people and I would probably say, you know, even myself, risky in the short term, you know, because we can't really we don't know what's going to happen in the short run. But, but by risky, we mean unpredictable. Don't unpredictable. We? Right. Yeah. yeah. Not, yeah. not, you know, very unpredictable and somewhat volatile, depending on mm-hmm. the, the particular stock that, mm-hmm. that you're looking at. But you know, I would make the argument in, in a book that we did a study on a few years ago uh, by Nick Murray that, you know, not owning stocks is probably uh, the risk, you know, not that stocks are, are risky. And so, um, you know, he said that people greatly overestimate the long term risk of owning stocks. And secondly, it sounds the same, but it's very much different is that uh, people seriously underestimate the long term risk of not owning stocks. And so, um you know, if you have time on your side, that's we've talked about this. You know, what what's your time frame for this money? And if it's a, a long term time frame, then, you know, absolutely. I think stocks have to be a part of that portfolio. It doesn't have to be um, picking stocks or stock trading. It can be just a very diversified fund um, or you know, mutual fund, ETF, whatever it is. It, it, it's not it's not hard. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. But. Uh, a couple points there. The the real long-term return of equities is so much greater than that of bonds or risk-free assets that holding bonds is actually the <laughs> irrational, you know, when you think about comparing the two. Um, they are, stocks are more volatile, you know, and some stocks, you know, high growth stocks are horrifically volatile, mm-hmm. you know, but as time goes on, volatility isn't the risk. Volatility passes away and the premiums on stocks continues to remain. They're going to go up. 
And, uh, you know, I guess the last thing I'll say is that the great long-term real-life financial risk isn't loss of principal, but it's an erosion of purchasing power, which we just talked about with bonds. You know, they, they kill your purchasing power over the long term, and, and stocks actually will help your purchasing power because they'll keep up with inflation and historically have done so. Mm-hmm. Right. That's really good, Nick. And this leads us to a study. Uh, this is another visual chart that I'm referencing. This is a study that's looking at stock returns from 1950 through 2023. And it has to do with the holding period of being a stock investor. And it's true that there is volatility and uncertainty about the stock market any given, any given day and any given year and over time. But just like Nick said, as we have more time to remain invested in the stock market, that volatility band or the the range of outcomes, I'll say, narrows in favor of long-term investors. So back to the study from 1950 to 2023, any one year could, during this period of time, have returned as great as a 47% return on the upside or as poorly as a 39% decline on the downside. So in any one year, that band of outcomes is really wide. Yeah. I mean, it's, we, we kind of talk about it. It's, it's just, a, it's anyone's guess. It is. I mean, that's it a is. law. There's a, there's a huge opportunity for different types of returns there. Sure. But here's where the study gets good. As we look at the five-year rolling periods of time and the 10-year rolling periods of time, and lastly, the 20-year rolling periods of time. So now we're talking more about long-term investing the band of outcomes narrows. So for a five-year rolling period, the the upside would be 28% and the downside would be a negative 3% return. By the time we get to a 10-year period of time, it'd be a 19% on the upside and negative one on the downside. And then a 20-year rolling period of time has a 17% on the upside and a 6% on the lowest, meaning there's not been a 20-year rolling period of time since 1950 when a stock investor would have seen their value go down in stocks. Or seen a worse return than a gain of 6% exactly. on average per year. Sure. Right? So, so not only yeah. did they not go down, but the worst they did was a 6% return. Right. And I'll, one other point I want to emphasize, I think, on this chart also. So that worst one-year return, a loss of 39%, which happened to be 2008, great financial crisis. So that says if you bought you know, the S&P 500 January 1st, 2008, you would have been down 39% that year. Ouch. Right. That hurts. But if you would have held for the next four years, so from what, 2009 through 2000, the end of 2012, the worst you did was an average loss of 3%. That, that's mind boggling. Mm-hmm. So that's you know, it's when you, know, you were talking about this earlier, Nick, typically when we see a lot of the worst returns in the stock market, you know, it tends to snap back very quickly as well, you know, not, not long after that. Um, which, which kind of brings us, I guess, to our next one, again, talking about risk. And, and if we're keeping track here and keeping count of our myths, this would be myth number six, that I should not own stocks during retirement. Um, I think a lot of folks forget that even when they retire, hopefully you'll have a fruitful retirement of another 15, 25, maybe 30 years in retirement. So that is still a long time frame to, to try to keep pace with inflation, to be able to grow your money you know, over the long term. Um, 
So, you know, the average 65-year-old male, people think, you know, tend to think of life expectancy as being, I don't know, whatever it is, 72 years old, 73, whatever that might be. You know, that's including everybody from birth up until 72, right? Mm -hmm. So by the time you've reached age 65, your average life expectancy is actually another 17 years to, uh, if you're a male. So for, yeah, for a male, the average 65-year-old male is expected to live another 17 years to age 82. A uh, 65-year-old female, on average, is expected to live another 20 years. So again, that that's kind of a long, you know, still that long term that we talk about to being able to grow your money and invest in the in the market and and try to keep pace with inflation, achieve your goals, all those good good kinds of things. So I would say when you do retire, that is a good time to kind of go back and review your plan, you know, and and understand how you're going to use your money, your assets, those kinds of things, and it may make sense to you know to rebalance or to reallocate into a different portfolio. But, you know, again, I think to to make that, it's the wrong decision to just to completely get out of the market altogether. Say, okay, I'm taking all my chips off the table. I'm at retirement and, and you know, I'm going all to cash or all, all to bonds. Right. You still have time on your side fundamentally. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. So, and if we look at that from a couple standpoint, so, you know, husband and wife um, married at age 65, there's a if, if they're both in good health, there's a 90% chance that one of the two will live to at least age 85. And again, if you're in good health, uh, actually a 73% chance, call it three and four chance that one of you would leave, live to age 90. Um, and so again, yeah, taking that, that long, long-term look and, and long, uh, you know, perspective of time into account, even when you do retire. Yeah. And I, I've run into uh, people and I, and I'm, you know, a lot of it is how you're raised, but I've run into a lot of folks that, you know, it's like, hey, I've worked my whole life, I've saved, I've built up this nest egg, and now I'm going to retire. And you, it's almost like you you take all the risk off the table, and I'm just going to live off of, you know, the principal, or I'm going to live off of uh, the interest, or I'm not going to live very long. You know, my parents didn't live, you know, very long, or or I've got some health issues or whatever it is. And, and you know, you automatically just assume because you're at retirement that you, you're no longer a long-term investor. And I think what we've, you know, based on hopefully some of the things we've talked about is that regardless of, of where you are, whether you're working or not, you can still be a long-term investor. And if your life expectancy is another 17 to 20 years, you're absolutely a long-term investor and, and you should have, you know, stocks as a part of your allocation. And again, you know, stocks is sometimes synonymous with a lot of people as risky, but you do it in a way that uh, through discipline and a plan and diversification, uh, it, it gives you the greatest chance of success. <clears throat> and so um, I think we've we've busted that one again. Yeah, for us. sure. So Myth number six busted. We're doing, so, we're doing pretty yeah. good. We've, we've not really <laughs> confirmed any of these except that a paper, piece of paper can't be folded seven times. <laughs> That's um, right. So another one. So some of these we'll kind of run through. We've got three or four more that I think we can get through. Uh, pretty good, but or pretty quickly. But this one is, we'll call it number seven. If the it, it's it's what we call sequence of returns. If the market averages a twelve percent return and I withdraw eight percent, then I'm going to net four percent at the end of the day. And 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 I and, I, and I'll, I'll also say this about the next few that we're going to go through. These are some of the things that some you know uh, well-known financial gurus, the Dave Ramseys of the world. Not that they're all totally wrong, but with some context, I think that you'll see that there might be a better way of doing doing some of these things. And so, um, so again, this one is having to do with sequencer returns. And PB, you just 
I guess was uh, recently did a, an article on sequencer returns risk. So, so explain that, you know, if the market average is 12% and I take out 8%, I've still netted 4%. What is that a fact? Okay. If that's all that you tell me, then sure, it's true. But remember, the key word here is average is the market average is 12%. We're not going to receive 12% consecutively and consistently year after year, but rather that's just an average. So that's the trick about this is we have to remember that whether we're talking about stock investments or even bond investments, unless it's just a single bond that you own that you know what you're going to get. But as far as a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, we don't know exactly from year to year what it will be. We do know the historical average, of course, but because it will be different from year to year, the sequence of returns does matter mathematically in a case where you're either making investments into the account or having withdrawals uh, out of the account. The sequence does matter a lot, and especially in the context of retirement planning, what's worst is to have poor performance in terms of uh, market performance during the early years of retirement when you're starting to have distributions out of your savings uh, because those will compound, unfortunately, as the market declines. On the flip side, though, if you experience good years in the market during the early years of retirement, then that will cushion the fact that you are withdrawing from your retirement savings and prolong the, the, the time that your savings can potentially last you. The message is, is that the sequence of returns does matter. So it's a little bit oversimplified. It's too simple. It's an oversimplification to say that if the market averages 12% and I withdraw eight, then I net four or whatever numbers you want to plug in oh, that. Sure. And we, right. we, that's part of having a plan, you know, and I naturally kind of gravitate to like, if this is the plan, what's the worst thing that could happen? And so, you know, I think when we're building a retirement plan or, or a financial plan attached to a goal, but specifically retirement, you know, we've got uh, our software that, that we use, we can stress test it. You know, what happens if the financial crisis were to happen again or an interest rate cycle that were to happen? What happened in the history? You know, what if we bring it to today? And so we will do that. And, and I think you mentioned, you know, like retirement, it's been proven that especially if you're taking money out of your portfolio, that the first two years of your retirement really are the most critical. And so, you know, we look at it from the standpoint of, you know, if this is how you're invested, it carries this amount of risk. And what happens if the market is not great, uh, you know, for the first two years of retirement? What does that do, you know, in the long term to your plan? And we try to build that plan to make sure that even if worst case scenario happens, we're, we're still on track. Absolutely. Yep. So. Myth number seven, I believe. We busted that one as well. So yep. we'll move along to myth number eight. And, and again, as Nick mentioned, this is not an attack on, on Mr. Ramsey. We, uh, we love his <laughs> budgeting principles. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, some of his investing principles, we, we think there may be you know, some things left there that, that we could discuss. So myth number eight is you should be debt-free before investing. Um, and this might depend on your situation, maybe even your personal preference to, to some degree. But, you know, we think for sure that it makes sense to take advantage of, of any company match, matching in your retirement plan, right? So no matter what, you know, how much you've got in debt, for the most part, if, the, if your company matches what you would put in your 401k, 403b, that's free money left on the table if, if you don't take advantage of that. So, you know, even if you do have a large amount of debt, to do that minimum, to receive that match probably makes some sense. 
And then mathematically and logically, it, it probably makes sense also if you can earn more on your invest on your investment than you can on the debt that you have. You know, if you're one of those you know lucky folks that have your mortgage at three percent or less, or I would. I talked to somebody last week, two and a half percent. There you go. You know? Yeah, yeah. If you've got your mortgage at two and a half percent, I mean, I would absolutely pay the minimum on that over the long term, and and you know, and save the rest of that money and invest that. Money. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, expand on that a little bit because. Let's say you've got a, a mortgage that will use your 3%, and let's say it's a 30-year mortgage that you've got 25 years left on. You know, I mean, right now, an easy example of that is, well, you could buy a CD paying five and a quarter percent. So is your money, you know, is it better to go to paying off your debt at, you know, when you're paying off debt, what I like to think about it, an easy way to think about it is whatever the interest rate is, is that's your rate of return. So if you've got a a mortgage at three percent, and you pay it off. You're, you're paid off early. You're earning three percent on that money. But like a CD at five and a quarter, you're you're netting, you know, two percent plus. But you know what we've seen on the stock market. You know what does it do long term? Right. And if you're if you're if your loan is, you got twenty years or twenty five or ten or fifteen. You know the stock market at nine, ten, eleven percent, or even you know six or seven, in in rough times, or or you know a conservative portfolio is right. I mean, it's, yeah. The, so that chart that PB went over, you know, a few minutes ago showed that the worst average twenty year return going back to nineteen fifty was a gain of six percent. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you've got your mortgage at two and a half, three percent, even four percent, you know, and you've got twenty or twenty five years left on it. That 100% probably mm-hmm. makes sense just to invest that money and, and ride out the ups and downs of the market. And over the long term, you know, you'll, you'll come out on top. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that there is, you know, it's not as we, we make that out to be very black and white. Like sometimes it's like, hey, if we look at the numbers and the math, this is what you're supposed to do. But as we've as we found that our emotions get in the way and sometimes just how we were raised and brought up, you know, little to no debt. And that's OK. And, and for some people having you know, debt hanging over their head, uh, you know, is there's biblical principles behind that, but also it gives, you know, it, it, it just paying that debt off helps them sleep better at night. And I think there's absolutely something to be said for that and, and something that we want to take into consideration. And, um, you know, if we think about trying to kind of play that game, you know, got you, you busted that myth that you have to be debt free. That's, that's not true. And you, and just because you're investing and you're not debt free doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. But, you know, another another principle is uh, or that we've heard is that when you when you are paying off your debt, you want to start with the smallest balance first. So this and, would be myth number nine, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, so that's myth number nine. Pay off your debt, get debt free and start with the smallest balance first. And, you know, um, hopefully by what we just talked about, I think we can we can bust that pretty quickly. But. You know, if you are in a, in a have a plan to to pay off debt, and let's say you've got a mortgage, maybe a little bit of credit card, or uh, a car, a vehicle, or student loans, or whatever it is, you know, really, if you want to if you want to work the math out, you want to pay down the one with the highest interest rate because we just talked about it. Whatever the rate the rate is you're paying off, that's your rate of return. And if you've got credit card debt, you know, at fourteen to I think twenty plus percent these days. But you have a little, you know, um, a little bit left on your car at 5%. Don't pay your car down, you know, attack that high interest rate, you know, debt of a credit card. And so the idea behind paying off the, um, the, the smallest debt first is really more for 
uh, and it, maybe it works for some folks and I get it is just more of a, hey, let's build some momentum here and let's build some confidence in our plan. So it gives you some success to keep keep up with that. But if if you really want to be smart about it, there's probably a little bit better of a way to do it. And so, you know, we'll we'll say we're busting myth number nine that, you know, maybe sometimes it's helpful or makes sense. But mathematically, starting with the smallest balance first is not always the right thing to do. For mm-hmm. sure. Myth number 10 is you have to be wealthy to start investing. Well, we've kind of led up to this one, I believe, with myth number eight that we debunked. We believe you don't have to be wealthy to start investing. We believe it's never too early to get started. That's for a lot of reasons. We want to see people have the greatest chance of long-term financial success. And so getting started early is priority number one. Furthermore, there's low barriers to getting started these days. Uh, Many brokerage firms offer zero commissions. It's never been easier to start an an investment account or to start an IRA. Uh, It's arguably never been easier to get involved in a company workplace retirement plan if your employer offers it. There's easy ways to set up automation with regards to your savings and your investing. You can utilize target date funds if you're unclear about what to do and and don't have a financial advisor. Even ETFs and mutual funds and and passive investing vehicles like that uh, have never been more streamlined in our view and can help people have great long-term success. But the key is you do have to start early. For sure. Yeah, and clearly we're not wealthy if we start early, right? Unless it's a... (laughs) Right. So, I mean... The principles show that the earlier you start, the more successful you are. Yeah. And so there's another book that, you know, one of the other advisors sort of referenced when when we were taking a look at kind of the outline for this uh, this episode uh, called The Millionaire Next Door. And that book makes the point that a lot of millionaires aren't wealthy because they have or had a high income, but because they just lived within their means and invested the rest. Mm-hmm. So you don't. Yeah. A millionaire doesn't start out a millionaire oftentimes. Um, and, and yeah, they just make smart financial decisions and invest as they can and grow it forward. And, you know, the yeah. rest is history. I think what they in that book, I think, what does they say? They pay, pay yourself first, you know, like, hey, w- with whatever it is that you have, like, you know, pay yourself first, you know, whether that's a 401k contribution or whatever it is and worry about, you know, the rest after that. As long as you're taking care of that, then your chances of long term success or whatever you define as wealthy are probably pretty good. Right. So that brings us, I think, to our last myth. And this probably in this room here during our pod, this is going to be our favorite one to bust, I would say, <laughs> right? So myth number 11 is I don't need a financial plan or a financial advisor. So, yeah, this one this one will be a lot of fun for us, I think, to, to bust. You know, and while a plan, it's it, it, any individual's plan is going to vary in scope and complexity, kind of depending on what your situation is. But I really do believe, and I think we're all very passionate, you know, that, that folks should have some sort of financial plan, whether that's, you know, written out in some sort of complex document that a financial advisor can put together for you or just something maybe that you put on a spreadsheet or even just in a Word document or, you know, a notepad of what you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, a plan, I think it does three things for folks. And number one, it kind of defines what your goals are. You know, it puts a purpose to, to your money, to what it is you're trying to accomplish. Um, and then from there, it kind of creates a roadmap on how you're going to achieve those goals. You know, so we come up with strategies around investing, around savings, around spending, around all, you know, around all different kinds of things uh, to, to help achieve those goals. And then finally, it keeps you disciplined. So if you have a plan and you know what it is you're trying to accomplish, 
you know, that just automatically would, would lead to more discipline. So it helps someone stay on track by regularly kind of reviewing and assessing the plan. And um, what do they say? A, a goal without a plan is a wish or a dream. Or right. Like right. That. Yep. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, that particular plan is mostly is there for discipline. Right. Know? And it's like, hey, let's let's track what we're doing here and not get lost in it and, and give up and revisit it when we feel like we're ready to revisit it or right. when we need to revisit it. Absolutely. I think that the, having a plan to bust a lot of the other 10 previous myths that we spoke about, you know, and so yeah. we, we, we talk a lot about behavioral finance and people tend to get out of the markets at the wrong time or, you know, maybe even want to get into them at the wrong time. So having a plan and, and knowing why you have what you have, you know, helps you sort of, you know, guide yourself through the markets, you know, through all the ups and downs and helps you keep that long-term perspective. So let's, Nick, let's talk about, you know, the need for a financial advice. I guess this would be myth 11A, you know, I don't need a, a financial advisor. Yeah. And, you know, if we think about it, um, you know, it's not just uh, having an advisor is not just picking investments. And sometimes really and truly, that's the easiest part of what I think we do. And Vanguard, which if you're not familiar with Vanguard, is really kind of the pioneer of low cost, passive um you know, uh, investing, bringing it to the masses, making it available for everybody and accessible. And uh, we know a lot of folks, we use some Vanguard funds in our portfolio. A lot of uh, clients and, and folks that we know have portfolios with Vanguard. But, you know, for the longest time, Vanguard didn't offer that personal service or that uh, advisor that you could talk with and, and, you know, share concerns with. And as your life changes and situations to kind of uh, how, see how that fits within your plan. So they actually did a study, they call it Vanguard's Advisors Alpha, which kind of talks about um, the, the alpha or the excess returns that you can add to your portfolio uh, by hiring a financial advisor or a, a, a good financial advisor, I would say. And so some of the things I won't get too far into it, but some of the things they talk about is having a suitable asset allocation, being broadly diversified. Um, cost-effective implementation, you know, are you paying commissions to get invested? Are there front-end loads? Are there uh, lockup periods? So we want to be very mindful of expense ratios, which a lot of people don't really see because they're built into whatever it is you're investing in. But rebalancing, you know, sticking to a good rebalancing strategy. And sometimes that's hard to do when, th- when you know, uh, it's hard to sell into rallies and it's hard to buy into you know, market turmoil. And so a good rebalancing strategy forces you to do that. Uh, Behavioral coaching, you know, we've kind of beat a dead horse with just the behavioral finance, emotional investing, these biases that we bring to the table. So having somebody there who can recognize those biases and talk through them with you, like, you know, some of these, I mean, this is what we do, you know, and uh, some of these things are really surprising to us. So I, I would imagine they're definitely surprising for the average lay person. And so you know, we can we can recognize those things and we can talk through those things. Asset location, you know, uh, you know, is this investment, is it better suited or is it going to change me out, my outcome if it's in a tax deferred account versus a taxable account? You know, things like that. Spending strategy, withdrawal order, factoring in sequence of returns, these things that we talked about. Um, am, am I a growth investor, an income investor or a total return, uh, you know, and uh, or some kind of combination, but what they Vanguard, there's there's all these different things, and 
Uh, what they've said is that, you know, they've estimated that a, an advisor could potentially add around 3% in net returns um, to portfolio over the long run versus somebody not working with an advisor. And, you know, we can debate that. And I'm not sure if, uh, you know, we've not really dug into how they came up with the, the basis points allocated to each thing. But, you know, I, I feel confident in the Vanguard name and, and it, it, you know, to add another one, this this one I'm looking at now is from Morningstar, which a lot of people is a third party uh, research provider for, you know, investors. And they've kind of done the same thing. They've really come to uh, to about the same number, you know, three percent plus excess returns. They've gotten there a different way. You know, they talk a little bit more about active management, passive management, being systematic about your rebalancing. But a lot of them are are similar. You know, the planning piece, the asset selection and location. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it, not everybody needs a financial advisor. Everybody's a little different. Everybody brings uh, a different uh, knowledge level to what this is. But even us as financial advisors, I think what we've said and we've read is that we can benefit from each other, you know, and helping each other. It's, it's just because you have the knowledge doesn't mean that uh, you're not blinded to the behavioral piece of it or the emotional piece of it. And so, you know, I would say that financial advisors need a financial advisor that's not themselves. For sure. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it's that's not a, hey, we're trying to sell you on our firm. You know, there's a lot of great, reputable financial advisors, um, you know, out there. But it, there's definitely some value to having them on your team. Absolutely. Yep. So, yeah, there, there you have it. Um, that's 11, maybe 12 different uh, financial myths that hopefully we have, have busted for you all. Um, yeah, it's, know, been, it's been fun. Yeah, as I said, we, hopefully I we we've bit. had a lot of fun. I, we, I hope the listeners have had some fun also listening to us. I hope it's been informative. Yeah, thanks um, Thanks to our listeners for hanging in there. Uh, this was one of our longer episodes, but hopefully it was packed with good, useful information. For sure, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed listening to us. Hopefully it was somewhat entertaining to you as well. And uh, we would ask that you just join us next time on The Benchmark. Benchmark.